We are starting a new message series today on the book of Judges. Uh, we're taking a break from the book of Matthew for the summer for probably around the next nine or ten weeks, and then we'll get back to Matthew in September. But we're going to be Judges, which basically um, addresses or, or follows along the, the people of Israel after they have been rescued from Egypt, after they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they've entered into the promised land, the, God, the land that God had promised to them the land of Canaan, and Joshua leads them in there, and, and it's their job now to kind of take possession of the land and, and, and to push all of the Canaanites out. And, uh, and basically, the book of Judges tells the story of Israel's failure to do that, their failure to listen to God, their commitment to just kind of continue living life the way that they want to live it, according to their own desires and their own rules. And the very end of the book of Judges ends this, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a really good description of Israel at the time in the book of Judges. It's a good description of our world today. Um, whether you are a regular churchgoer or not, most of us um, really try to live our lives according to our own rules. Um, and we, we do what's right in our own eyes pretty much a lot of the time. And so what this book does, I think, among other things, is it, it, it reminds us of their need and our need for a king to save us and to love us and to lead us and to care for us. So listen to God's word. I'm going I'm to start in Judges 2, which is 8 to 23. So listen to God's word. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him with, within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies." Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. 
whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at this passage um, in the book of Judges, that you would help us to build our lives on your word and on your love, which is a firm foundation. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would speak to us, and that there would not be a single person in here who leaves unchanged. So Father, we pray that you would work in us and among us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I get older, I find that I have to become much more respectful of gravity. I don't know if any of you guys have noticed that yourself. You know, as you get older, you have to respect gravity more than you did when you were a kid. I was little. I remember like jumping off of the top of a jungle gym at my elementary school, you know, like six feet high, I would just jump down off of that thing and then like land and bend my knees and roll and absorb the fall. It was, you know, it was nothing. It was like easy. And I remember back when I was in like eighth or ninth grade, the World Cup was happening, you know, the major soccer tournament in the world. And, and I would go out in my front yard and I would just spend an hour just throwing the ball in the air and trying to do a bicycle kick. That's like where you like jump and flip over and like kick the ball over your head. I would spend an hour just trying to do that. And it wouldn't phase me. I'd be fine, you know? Um, I, I, would, I would spend so much time out in my driveway when I was like in later high school, just jumping off of my garage. Like I would jump and then push off my garage and then get a couple extra feet of vertical leap and I'd dunk the ball like over and over and over again. Thought nothing of it. And nowadays, I feel like going upstairs is just a challenge. <laughs> like my my boys like laugh at me constantly because maybe, I mean, seriously, like 50% of the time, maybe it's not that high, but it feels like it. Like 50% of the time I fall going upstairs. Like I'm trying to rush and I just like trip and they'll just be in the other room and they'll just hear this, boom, 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 you know? And they'll be like, you go, you okay? As they're laughing and I'm just like, I'm fine. Just give me a second. It's sad. I respectful of gravity. As I walk downstairs, I'm just waiting, especially when I'm like carrying something heavy. I don't know how many of you guys have that same feeling. Carrying something big and heavy, and I'm going down the stairs, I'm just no. I'm just like an inch away from just catastrophe walking downstairs. I, I have to respect gravity. You have to respect it. What's that? <laughs> That's right. You're right. I have to have them carry stuff downstairs more often. You're right. But I have to respect gravity. I think you probably have found that tr true for yourselves as well. Um, I would say that one of the things that the entire book of Judges does is to warn us of the gravity of sin. To warn us all of the gravity of sin, of the fact that sin pulls at us in a way that, um, you know, we are just one inch away from catastrophe at all times. <laughs> There's a real gravity to the sin that happens in the people of Israel, in the nation of Israel, in this, in this entire book. As Joshua commanded the people of Israel to go in under Joshua to Canaan and possess the land by driving the Canaanites out. And, and, and what you see in chapter 1 that we didn't read is just this kind of recording of what actually happened. As they went in, you know, some of them, they, they succeeded. They, they took possession of some parts of the land, but then other parts of the land, other, some of the tribes didn't quite 
you know, completely possessed the land and they, and they continued to live there among the Canaanites, the foreigners, the other people that weren't part of the people of God. And, and then in chapter two, you see that they also did not completely destroy the, the idol worship people. They didn't destroy the altars. And even in chapter two, they started to worship the gods of the people of Canaan as well. And that brings us now to this passage that we read today, which is really a summary of the rest of the book. And and it describes what you see as a cycle through the rest of the book, kind of a cycle where the people, you know, they don't listen to God, they disobey him, and God in his anger judges his people and allows the, the enemies of Israel to kind of subdue them and oppress them and plunder them, as it says here, right? And, uh, and in their misery, in their distress, Israel then cries out in their misery and God responds and gives them a judge. He raises up a, a leader that rescues the people. And then after that leader dies, the people then again disobey and go back to their ways of not listening to God. And so there's this cycle over and over again. You see judge after judge, and, and over the next you know, nine weeks or so, we're gonna look at some of the different judges that God raises up. But you see this cycle, but it's, it's even more than a cycle. It's not really a cycle. It's not just this round and round thing. As you read the book of Judges, it's more like a downward spiral where there's a round and round thing, but it keeps going down further and further, and things get messier and uglier and uglier. By the end of the book of Judges, you're just like, it's hard to even read it. You're just like, what am I reading about? This is awful. This is awful. And so you see this, this downward spiral, this pull of the gravity of sin on the people of God, of, of their disobedience to God, of their commitment to live apart from God and according to their own desires, this, this pull. And, and so even in this passage that's a, a summary of the whole book, I, I see kind of four ways that sin pulls at all of us. Four ways that sin pulls at the people of Israel and that sin pulls at us, okay? And we have to respect that pull of sin in order to respond to it with grace, in order to respond to it with faith, okay? And so what are these four things? Well, first, I think it it urges us to respect the pull of the culture. It urges us to respect the pull of the culture. God had commanded Israel to drive out all the people and to utterly destroy the people of Canaan and their idols and their altars and their worship. And this, you know, this begs the question, one of the big questions for, for many, many people as they read the Bible, um, as they kind of critique the Bible, and they, they say, you know, this does not seem right. You know, how can God command his people? You know, if, if we, in, in today's world, if we, were, if we see another country, a leader, invade another country and just wipe them out completely, we would say that is wrong, right? That's wrong. How can God allow that to happen in the Old Testament? How can God command that to happen in the Old Testament? Even shortly after he just told his people, you know, don't murder, don't steal, isn't that what he seems to be telling them to do here when he, when he tells them to go in and invade Canaan and, and destroy the people there and to, and to drive them out so that they would possess it themselves? So, you know, what is the answer to that? And, and you know, to be honest with you, it's, it's really hard to come up with a good answer for that. And, uh, and on one level, we have to say God is way above us, way beyond our com- ability to completely understand but I think we also need to recognize the fact that the people of Canaan 
weren't, you know, completely innocent. <laughs> Far from it, actually. The people of Canaan were, were, were pretty, pretty awful, evil people, the whole culture there. Um, they, they weren't a bunch of people who were like, you know, living for one another and doing kindness and compassion, you know, everywhere they turned. This was a people really, according to, to God's, you know, standards, a people that were in need of judgment themselves. And what you see a lot in the Old Testament is God bringing his judgment upon those who deserve it. He, even as you read through the Old Testament, you see God bringing his judgment on his own people, right? You see God bringing other nations in to destroy his own people at times and to carry them off into exile. Um, and, and so there's, there's a reminder here, as, as through the rest of the Old Testament, of the fact that sin brings judgment. When we rebel against God, when we fight against him, when we don't live our lives submitted to him, we deserve his judgment. And, and what we see here is that as he commands the people to invade Canaan is really um, a, 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 an example of what all people ultimately deserve from God when we try to stand before him in our own strength, in our own work. And so he commands his people to, to, to come in and invade Canaan, not to just take this land arbitrarily, judgment on the people there. And one of the things he tells them to to, to drive them out so that there won't be any temptation to kind of go along with these people either um, and, and their uh, worship of other idols. And, and that's exactly what ends up happening when they don't drive the people out and they live alongside these people. What happens? They begin to worship their gods. They begin to worship their idols. The idols of the people of Canaan totally you know, provide a pull towards the Israelites, to, to worship as well. Um, and I think we recognize um, that that pull exists for all of us. Those of us who try to follow God and trust in Jesus and, and live the way he wants us to, there's this constant pull of the culture around us that we live in. There is no, you know, back then, God chose a nation to work through. That is not true anymore. No matter how much you might like to think that the United States is God's chosen nation, it is not. The church is God's chosen people. The church is God's chosen people. And no matter where you live, United States or, or anywhere else, the culture that we live in is going to live with, with, and, and live with a radically different set of values than God wants us to live with. You know, the, the culture that we live with, the, the, the people that we work alongside, the companies that we work for, the neighbors that we, that we spend time with, our friends that we spend time with, the, the culture, the pop culture that we consume, the social media that we consume, all of that is constantly giving us a message and, giving, and, and it's pulling at our heart to say, no, this is what you should be living for. This is what's important. You know, it's, the, these things are telling us, you know, it's, it's all about wealth. It's all about power. It's all about image. It's all about pleasure. It's all about, um, you know, you. It's all about you. It's all about your rights. It's all about you defining yourself. It's all about you. That's, that's the, what the culture is constantly pulling at us. You know, the, uh, kids in school, your friends, they're telling you 
by just, you know, not, not necessarily like saying out loud, but just the way that they live, you know. They're, they're, they're giving you a competing set of values with God's set of values, and that set of values is a constant, it, it, it's, there's a gravity to it, it's pulling at us. And we need to respect it. We need to respect it by being aware. We need to respect it by kind of uh, identifying what are the things in the culture that conflict with what God wants and says is important and valuable. I need to respect it by identifying those things and seeing, you know, where it's pulling on me. I need to respect culture. I also need to respect the pull of complacency. The pull of complacency. In verse 10, it says that after the generation that entered Canaan died, there arose another generation that didn't know the Lord. Right? All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. As I read that, I'm like, how does that happen? How is it that one generation seems to know God and then another generation like, rises up immediately and they don't know God at all? How does that even happen? And I think we're, we're actually, today, we're constantly, people in the, in, in the church, in Christian circles, are constantly asking that question about, you know, like, as kids grow up in the church, it seems like more and more and more kids grow up in the church and then they leave. And they're like, that, that's not for me. I don't believe that stuff. That's, uh, you know? And we're constantly thinking, you know, how, do, how do we keep kids as they grow up? How do we keep the next generation as part of the church and, and believing in God and, and trusting in him? And I think, I think it's, it's simply, there, there's a lot of like articles people put out saying, you know, these are the reasons it happens. I think the biggest reason it happens is because the generation above, the generation that is raising that younger generation, we're actually not living as if God is real. We're not living our lives in practical ways as if God is alive. And, and no matter how much we might bring them to church with us or, or take them to you know, religious classes or whatever, no matter how often we might pray before meals, as we live our lives, our kids don't see that God is real. I was just reading um, a guy, there's a pastor in New York City named Abe Cho, and he actually just posted some, some things on Twitter this past week about how do parents pass along their faith to their kids? How can we do this more successfully? And I would say more than just parents, how does one generation pass it generation, whether you have kids or not right now here in this church, you know, you have a responsibility to pass the faith, the, 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 the belief that God is real and alive to the younger generation. How do we do that? He says, here's a few of the things. He, he has a, a long list of things, but here's a few that really make a lot of sense. He says, your main job as parents is not to give an elite education, an idyllic childhood, or shield them from hardship. That's not your main job. Your main job is to show them that the purpose of life is to follow Jesus. That is your main job as a parent. Even as a, as a, as a generation, your main job is, is to communicate that the purpose of life is to follow Jesus. They have to see you make decisions and do things in your life that you would only do because you're following Jesus. How many of us, um, how many of our kids, how many of the younger generation sees us making decisions only? That's, it's clear. I'm only doing this because I'm following Jesus. Sadly, I don't think that happens a lot. We need to make Jesus a normal part of our everyday vocabulary, you know? Ask our kids, what would Jesus want them to do? 
in this circumstance. We need to frame your family on the mission of Jesus because you want to follow him. How many of us, as we talk with our kids, are saying, you know, we are doing this because Jesus, you know, this is Jesus' mission. You know, how many of us frame our decisions as a family about the mission of Jesus? You know, this is the problem. I think this is, and, and it's all a result of complacency. We're just, kind of, we're just kind of lazy and happy to be where we are, just kind of showing up for church, praying before meals most of the time, thinking that these kind of religious rituals are, are, are what make us okay spiritually. And I think that's where Israel was. You know, they, they thought that just, you know, the fact that they had the Ark of the Covenant, the, the fact that they followed these religious rituals meant that they were okay. But they weren't actually living out a faith in God, a relationship with God that impacted their practical lives on a daily basis. And of course, the next generation had no clue who God was, right? And so complacency pulls at us as parents, as an older generation. We need to think about how am I actually, how is my faith, how is my relationship with God impacting how I do my work today? What I want to accomplish today how I'm relating to people, especially people that disagree with me and make me annoyed and angry, right? And so we need to be careful about the pull of complacency. Um, third, we need to respect the pull of the present. Ten, it says that the, that the generation arose that did not know God or what? Or the work that he had done for Israel. The generation didn't know, the, know God or the work that he'd done for Israel. And then a bit later in verse 12, says this, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. Israel should have been defined by this amazing thing that God had done for them, right? They, they were a people for hundreds of years. They were slaves in Egypt. And God heard them groaning, and misery, and he came down and, and met with Moses and sent Moses to, to rescue them in, in this dramatic way with these plagues and by parting the Red Sea, and they walked across on dry ground. And, and, and he led them with a pillar of fire through the wilderness. You know, he did all of these amazing things. God had been so faithful to them and, and worked in powerful ways to love them and provide them for them and rescue them. And they had forgotten all of that. They had forgotten it. Because the needs of the present, I guess, were too pressing for them. You know, I, I can see how it might have happened. You know, they, they came into Canaan. They started living there amongst the other Canaanites. And the Canaanites, as they got to know them, the, the Canaanites would be like, yeah, you know, I, I hear you. The, you're the God of Israel, you know, Jehovah, Yahweh. Seems like, seems pretty impressive that he rescued you from Egypt. But, but now, you know, you need to deal with the pressures of today. You know, we, and here in Canaan, we got to worry about crops and the fertility of the land. We got to worry about having children. And, and, you know, we have gods here that can help you with that, with your problems that you have today in the present. And, and, and that's the thing. I think that the problems of the present can become so big for us and so preoccupying that it can be easy for us to forget how faithful God has been in the past and how much God has done for us in the past. And so I think the pull of today's pain and problems is, is something that easily makes us forget to trust God and to forget to live in light of God's power 
and faithfulness and provision for us today. If we lose touch with how God has been faithful in the past, it becomes that much harder to trust him in the present because the present is always full of things to fear. It's always full of things to worry about. Whether it is your job situation that you're like, I don't know if I can take one more day at that place. Or something that a, a close family member or friend is, is enduring and you're like, I, I, can't, I can't figure this out. You know, or, or a health concern that, that it just continues, it's chronic. Or just the fact that your life isn't, I mean, no matter how many times I feel like I, I get what I wish I had, it's, it's not what I want and I'm not happy. <laughs> and, and, you know, in the midst of those present feelings of, of dissatisfaction and discouragement, it, it becomes very hard for us to, to, to remember that God has been faithful in the past and that he's good and that he will provide for me in the present. He'll be enough now. We need to recognize that the present problems of today exert a, a real pull on us to live our lives apart from God, to not trust him. And lastly, we have to respect the pull of just sheer momentum. The sheer momentum of sin has a pull in and of itself. Um, when I was in high school, I was, uh, you, you probably would believe it, I was a really pretty well-behaved kid. I didn't really get in much trouble. You know, some you're looking doubtful. I was. I was very well-behaved. I, I didn't get in trouble very often. Um, but I wasn't perfect, as you would imagine. And um, I, uh, there's one time I had a good friend who lived across the street from this place called Bell Labs. I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with Bell Labs. It used to be owned by AT&T. They used to do all this, you know, maybe they still do. I think it's owned by Nokia now or something. But they, they do all this, you know, technological experiments and invent inventions and stuff like that there. And, and it's this huge complex of all sorts of buildings all over the place and parking lots everywhere. And, uh, and my friend lived across the street from there. So I was staying overnight at his house one night. And we went over there late at night just to mess around, you know. And they were doing a bunch of construction over there. They were building all sorts of stuff. And there was all this construction equipment and new construction. And we were like messing around, like going places we, we shouldn't have been going. And they had these giant wooden spools, basically. It was just like a giant wheel. And I don't know, I guess they, they coiled like giant, like heavy cable on these things. And so it's like, I mean, at least seven feet high. I mean, Chuck is laughing at me. He probably has seen these things. He probably works with these things. They're like maybe seven feet high, maybe taller. And they are heavy. They're like thick. It's not like plywood. It's like thick wood, like two wheels with a thing in between. And it's massive and heavy. And so we started like pushing this thing around the parking lot. Guess what maybe happened? But we got to this one parking lot and it had this like, you know, nice little decline down the parking lot. We're like, what will happen if we just push this down the parking lot? It'll be fun. And so we push it and it starts rolling and then it starts picking up speed and it starts going faster, faster. and we're like, oh, wow, that's going really fast. And, and, then, it, and then we think maybe it's going to like hit the curb and stop, but it hits the curb and like hops up onto the grass and continues to go. And I have, like, for a split second, I think, maybe I should run after it and try to stop it. And, I mean, this thing's like, I don't know, several hundred pounds? I don't know, this thing's heavy. If I tried to stop this thing, it would have run me over. It would have, I would have gotten seriously hurt. But the problem was, it was on the grass now and now rolling down a hill towards this main street. And... 
I was just, I, I saw like my life flash before my eyes. Like, <laughs> this thing's gonna go in the street. If this hits a car driving by, if a car hits this thing as it goes out in the street, I mean, that could have been fatal. Like, my life could have taken a totally different turn, right? Thankfully, like a car drove by as it was rolling, it rolled right across the street, up the curb, up the hill on the other side of the street, and then another car came by, and nothing happened. Nobody even knew, except maybe the guys who came in the next morning were like, why is that over there? I mean, the thing is that that thing had a serious momentum. I, I was not going to be able to stop that thing. And, and that is a picture of what sin is. The seriousness of sin, the momentum of sin in our own lives. Um, it's a picture of what happens in Judges. You know, as you, as you read this book in, in verse 19, um, in this passage, it says, Whenever the judge died, they turned back, and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. That's what I was talking about, this downward spiral, this, this thing that was just picking up momentum more and more and more as it went on. And I, I think this is absolutely true for us. When we compromise in our own lives and give in to sin, when we make questionable decisions for convenience, or maybe to get ahead at work, or maybe to, to stay out of trouble at work, when we don't try to stop ourselves from, from impatiently screaming at our children or other people and our family, when we fail, generosity and instead cling to what we think is ours, whether it's our time or money, when we greedily stuff, that has a momentum. And it just kind of takes more and more control. But this is the thing, this is the problem with sin. Um, to respect the pull of the momentum of sin isn't to say, okay, I'm just not going to move. I'm, I'm going to be really careful not to do anything wrong because if I do something wrong, it's just going to get worse and worse. The, 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 what, the way we need to respect the moment, momentum of sin is the fact that it's already rolling in our hearts. It's already rolling in our hearts and we cannot stop it in and of ourselves. We can't. We can't. And so, thankfully, um, we have a God who is gracious. And this passage, it, again, it's, it's a picture of what is it that happens? We, we, are, we are caught in this whirlpool, this downward spiral of sin that we cannot stop, that we cannot control. You know, what happens as this whirlpool sucks us down into it? What's at the bottom? And I think in this, this passage, we have a really beautiful picture of what's at the bottom. It's God's grace. It's God's grace. I, I love how this passage is organized. What you have is leading up to verse 15, you have a lot of uh, a description of God's people disobeying and rebelling against God and God being angry and bringing judgment upon them up through verse 15. And then in verse 17 on, a lot of that is just, again, the people disobeying and turning away from God and God bringing his judgment upon them. But then what's right in the middle in verse 16? What's right at the center of this? It says, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them 
out of the hand of those who plunder them. God raised up judges to save them. This is the hope of the gospel. That in the face of our of our sin, the sin that we are powerless we need someone to save us. God does throughout the entire book of Judges, over and over again, faithfully coming back to his people. As they get worse and worse, he comes and he faithfully provides. And he gives them a person. He raises a person up to save them. But what we also see in the book of Judges is that a, a human being, a human judge is not enough. Because after God sends judge after judge after judge, they still end up in a worse place. And we need something more. We need a, a, not just a human judge. We need a, a, a God who will come and save us. And ultimately, the book of Judges is crying out for Jesus. Urging us to cry out for Jesus. It's only Jesus that can save us from our sin. That can save us from a life of hopelessness and, and purposelessness. A life of death apart from God. It's only God himself sending Jesus to live and to die for us. The book of Judges urges us to cry out for Jesus and his grace from the bottom of the downward, downward spiral of our sin and to know that he is strong enough, that he is powerful enough, and that he is good and he's trustworthy. So cry out to him today. Respect the gravity of sin in all these areas in your life, but cry out to him and know that he alone can save you. Let's pray. Pray that you would help us as we think about this passage, as we, as we engage with this book this summer, to return to Jesus. Um, that that we sin for what it is, that we would see this bent in our hearts to, to turn away from you, to live life on our own terms, but, but, to, but to know that you are so good and gracious and merciful that you sent your son to, to ex experience the judgment we deserve so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know you and walk with you and be changed by you. Father, we pray that you would work in us and among us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.